Last night it was Lucifer. This morning it was Christ. Today, this I'm going to try and do two sessions now, and let me let me tell you what I want to accomplish this session real quickly, so that if I don't accomplish it, you'll know what I was trying to. The premise I'm working on is Ellen White's assurance that the issues involved in the great final crisis are exactly the same issues that started with Lucifer in heaven and that Christ met in his lifetime on earth. We have, however, a unique modern-day exemplification of both sides of that in the person and work of Dr. John Harvey Kellogg. You can see the uh, subtitle there, So Close, So Far. And that's not so far along, as in so close but so far away type of thing, okay? He was both. And so this, I, I can tell you, uh, all, all this material is, is from a, a book that I'm currently writing, and, and this one session here is going to try to cover the most ground, and consequently it's going to be the most superficial. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that's not to you know, say that it's not worth your time, but we won't be able to go into a lot of things, and I'm, I'm going to just go through... What I want you to grasp is the degree of significance in the two phases of Kellogg's life and ministry. Just for convenience sake, I refer to them as the good Kellogg and the bad Kellogg. Okay? Um, there was a time when he was good and he was very good. And there was a time when he was bad and he was very bad. And so, I just, more than anything else, we're not going to go into a lot of the details of the hows and the whys in some things, but I want you to at least see that his life stands as a valid representation of both sides of this struggle. Does that make sense? Okay. So Dr. Kellogg is, without doubt, the most colorful, intriguing individual that Adventism has produced. Uh, Ellen White is, you know, in a category of her own because of the whole prophet of the Lord type of thing. But beyond that, there is no one that holds a candle to Kellogg for just interest's sake. Let's put it that way, okay? Uh, I'm assuming that you at least know that he had something to do with cornflakes. Um, but he had a lot to do with more than that. Uh, the guy was brilliant. He... Just, he, he wrote something like 50-some books in his lifetime. He uh, set the world record for abdominal surgeries, 126, I believe it was, without a fatality, at a time when the, the norm was 20% would, would die. If you, if you sliced the guy open in the chest, he had a one in five chance of dying. And, and Kellogg went 126 or 46 or something like that. I forget what it was. Um, he was amazing in many ways. He was raised as an Adventist. Um, he uh, was not always an exemplary Adventist. He became a strong force for good, and due to complicated circumstances, some of his own fault and some of the fault of others, he ended up being a strong force for evil. And so we're just going to kind of zing through this and catch some of this. I want you to, to grasp here, the, first of all, the possibilities. Dr. Kellogg has done a work that no man I know of among us has had qualifications to do. Okay, well, that's, yeah, this is, what's the year on that? 1888, okay, 1880s Adventism. You know, we didn't have a lot of what you would call highly educated professionals in those days, okay? Kellogg was clearly the most educated Adventist on the, you know, face of the earth. Um, so you could look at that and just say, well, okay, that's nice. That's a very naturalistic explanation for that one. <clears throat> My dear brother, as I have before written to you, I know that the Lord has placed you in a very responsible position, standing as you do as the greatest physician in our world. Now, this is a fascinating comment for a number of reasons. Number one is this was actually written to Kellogg. And it was very rare that she did anything that would sound like flattery writing to him. She would praise him and support him writing to his enemies, <laughs> okay? And she would praise and support his enemies writing to him, okay? So it was, 
unusual for her to say something like this. And I would argue that Ellen White very rarely employs exaggeration as a literary technique. So I think there's something significant in that comment. God says of Dr. Kellogg, he is my physician. Respect him and sustain him. And the fact of the matter is, unfortunately, that the church, by and large, failed to do that, which contributed to his, his difficulties. Dr. Kellogg, with earnest, untiring energy, has testified by his works that he believes the word of God and that he is not content to be merely a theoretical believer. He has put his belief into works. He has faith and works combined. His work in the medical missionary line has had the appearance of being disproportionately large but he has seen the feeble efforts put forth by the churches whose practice has not been proportionate to the light. He looked like he was disproportionately large, but that was really because everything else was disproportionately small. And he has undertaken to educate his students to do service for the Lord. In this, he has only tried to walk in the light. He has been doing the very work the Lord has specified should be done. Kellogg got a lot of comments like this, or there were a lot of support comments like that. This is not a fanatical and superstitious work. It is the work that Christ did when he was in our world. And that's the key thing to the importance. Kellogg grasped, if you were in the presentation at, you know, this morning, this combined work of Christ, of preaching the truth and ministry, as, as Ellen White puts it in another place, the combined work of Christ-like ministry of the body and Christ-like ministry of the soul. And Kellogg grasped that. No one else was really doing that. And so... It is the work that Christ did when he was in our world. Dr. Kellogg has not betrayed his trust. The Lord has wrought with him in surgical operations, giving him wisdom and success. Men not of our faith feel that although Dr. Kellogg is a Seventh-day Adventist, yet he has wisdom and knowledge and a wide influence. They feel that it would be the height of folly to ignore this. Okay. <clears throat> there are many more of those kind of statements. We will say that's enough for right now. Um... Notice this next, uh, next statement here. Um, one more here. You need to practice health reform as just as conscientiously as Dr. Kellogg does, type of thing. Okay, so yeah, you know, she supported him. Okay, let's go on here. Now, this one. <clears throat> if Dr. Kellogg will trust himself wholly with God, he, capital H, will give him, little h, tact and perception and skill as a practitioner that has seldom been excelled. Angels of God will stand by his side when human life is in peril and wisdom from above will be given him. God designs that Dr. Kellogg shall still advance. He has only begun to climb the ladder. The Lord will give him grace that he is now ignorant of and he will, be see, and he, excuse me, and he will see as he has never seen before. He will realize that there is to be an intelligent discarding of all drugs. Skill and knowledge is to be given him, which he is in no case to keep to himself. He is to educate, educate, educate. Now, to me, I think this is a fascinating statement because what it tells me is that Kellogg never completed the course of action that God intended him to. Now, it doesn't say that, but I mean, I know that from other reasons. But looking at what God wanted to accomplish through him, it wasn't all accomplished, okay? Now, to me, that helps resolve some, some questions, and I'm not here to pick a fight with anybody on this, but you know, there are some very strong statements in the spirit of prophecy about not using drugs, for instance, and this is specified in this, this statement. Some very strong statements about that. But here, it's presented as something that the Lord was leading Kellogg to and would increase his knowledge and understanding of. This was yet future. You with me on that? Okay. So we struggle sometimes with these hard statements. And I'm not a physician, so I don't have to struggle the same way somebody else might. But, you know, there's these strong statements about not using drugs. And yet, yeah, you know, there's a case to be made for drugs. But notice what it says. Uh, this intelligent discarding. When is it intelligent to discard the drugs? What's that? When it's harmful. When there's a superior alternative. <laughs> okay. So to me, yeah, if you've got superior alternatives for any particular 
indications for drugs use the superior alternative. What this tells me is that God wanted to give Kellogg the superior alternatives. And then we wouldn't have to be saying, but what about, you know, we could say, well, you could do that, but there's a superior alternative. Which would you like, plan A or plan B? You know. So that, you know, but we, he, he didn't go there. He didn't, he didn't finish that job, and that's, I think, why we're left in the position we're in sometimes. So that, that helps me that little way. Okay, let's go on. <clears throat> a few background facts to get started here. October 10, and number 5, 1888, there was a ministerial institute, and then the general conference in 1888. This was the Minneapolis general conference. Jones, Wagner, Righteousness by Faith, Ten Horns, Two Laws, that whole thing, if you're familiar with that. Um, here's the interesting thing. After the meeting at Minneapolis, Dr. Kellogg was a converted man, and we all knew it. He could, we could see the converting power of God working in his heart and life. Now, to me, the obvious question, being the cynic of humanity that I am, is, so what was different? <laughs> you know, if, if this was such an obvious thing, everybody could see it, we all knew it, to me, I, I, well, what's different? Well, make a long story very short, what was different is that Dr. Kellogg began being nice to people. Okay? Um, <clears throat> that's not real technical, but it's what happened. Okay? It turns out being nice to people is what converted people do. And that's kind of a key thought. <laughs> okay? We really should not lose, lose track of that one. Notice this statement. It talks about righteousness by faith, right? Okay. When the believer is justified because of the merit of Christ, he is not free to work unrighteousness. Faith works by love and purifies the soul. Faith buds and blossoms and bears a harvest of precious fruit. Where truth is, good works appear. The sick are visited, the poor are cared for, the fatherless and the widows are not neglected, the naked are clothed, the destitute are fed. That's what converted people do. And Kellogg was converted, and so he started doing that. Okay. <clears throat> where do you find that in the Bible, though? Yeah. Where, where do you find that? Well, here's an answer. That's the spirit of prophecy, but she kind of gives us a key direction here. Faith in Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, righteousness by faith, right? The one who pardons our sins and transgressions, the one who is able to keep us from sin and lead us in his footsteps, is set forth in the 58th chapter of Isaiah. Isaiah 58, as you may recall, is the great medical missionary chapter. Okay? Here are presented the fruits of a faith that works by love and purifies the soul from selfishness. Faith and works are here combined. Isaiah 58 says, Thy righteousness shall go before thee. And she says, What does this mean? She says, Christ is our righteousness. This is the, will you call this the fast? It's not, you know, it's not this the fast that I've chosen. Loose the bands of wickedness, undo the heavy burdens, let the press go free, break every yoke. You know, deal your head bread to the hungry, bring the poor or cast out into your house, clothe the naked, hide not yourself from your own flesh. She says, That is a setting forth of righteousness by faith, right? Okay? <clears throat> Dr. Kellogg was so, um, he came to enjoy this. You know, there's, 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 there's a really cool thing, and that is that doing good can become enjoyable. <laughs> you know? It's one thing to do good because, well, it's the right thing to do. It's another thing to get to the point where it's fun. And Kellogg enjoyed it. He enjoyed it so much that he, he welcomed self-sacrifice. And you can get into weird sort of ways with that, but he welcomed it. In the summer of 1890, he talked to Ellen White about the possibility of starting an orphanage. He found out there were quite a few Adventist orphans. He said, Sister White, should we, should we start an orphanage? She said, among many other things, but she said, yes, that's a, that's, that's a good idea. So at the General Conference of February 1891, he you know, gave a little presentation, a speech and whatnot, in, in which he made the formal call or formal motion, you know, Mr. Chairman, I move that we start an orphanage, right? So here's some of his comments leading up in that. I have given a quite a good deal of thought and study to this subject. My wife and I have given considerable attention to this work for a number of years. We have been planning to raise 40 or 50 children ourselves. Just as fast as we get any money, we will invest it in children. I have done that for several years. 
Every single dollar that can be saved from other necessary expenses goes into the education of children. I do not believe we have any right to accumulate money. I think as long as we are well and have God's blessings upon our work, blessing upon our work, it is our duty to spend what we earn in God's work. I do not believe that in this age any man has a right to accumulate money. Now, some of these comments, two items in particular, I think, might possibly raise some eyebrows. The whole 40 or 50 kids thing, yeah, that's interesting. And the not accumulate any money thing, uh, it's easy to put those two together, perhaps. But, um, <laughs> but um, you know, those are, are interesting sentiments. Did he really mean that stuff? Well, I can tell you that he and his wife raised 42 children. Okay? He adopted 17 legally, and the other 25 were what we would consider like foster children, something like that. So he was serious on that much. Now hang on to this thought about the money. It was not something that was broadly accepted at the time, but it's an interesting seed that he planted. And it ties back to what we said on what I said on Friday night. And it goes like this, pretty simply. Remember, Lucifer lost faith in God. If I have faith in God's wisdom, power, and love, and his promise that he will take care of me, I do not have to carry the burden of caring for myself. Does that make sense? You with me on that? You remember how the moment, the moment you distrust God, you say, I've got to, I'm going to have to take care of myself, okay? If I am safe in God's hands, I don't have to care for myself. That frees my time up. I can now work for other people. That's basically what Kellen is saying, Okay? Um, now, there's, there's all sorts of interesting things, and I, I don't have time to go into all this. I will point out that timing is an important issue. Jesus worked in the carpenter shop until he was 30. I presume that that was gainful employment. Nothing sinful about that. But there did come a day when he hung up his hammer. And in a society that equated wealth with righteousness, it had to be the most frustrating thing in the world that this, this uneducated, homeless carpenter, ex-carpenter, itinerant nobody is going around preaching, drawing big crowds, and feeding them free lunches. Now, that had to be really frustrating. <laughs> okay. How could he do that? Well, hang on to that little picture. Let's go on. <clears throat> anyway, Kellogg's motion to start the orphanage was passed by the General Conference, uh, and they began to work on that. Uh, it got to a point where he needed money. Uh, just, I'm skipping part of the story, but he needed money, and he needed it really quickly in order to make this happen because it was, it was a, an issue that was snowballing out of control. Um, and so he began praying for a miracle. Um, okay, I completely forgot this. Let me, let me interject. Hang on to that thought. Let me interject. Notice this statement. This goes back to do with, with Kellogg's money comments. In the last great conflict of the controversy with Satan, those who are loyal to God will see every earthly support cut off. Okay, well, you're not going to have a nine-to-five at that point. You know, I mean, it's like, yeah, I, I need to call in and use a sick day today because they, they passed this death decree thing and I don't want to get killed, so, you know, can I have the day off because I'm sick? You know, I mean, that's, it's just not going to roll out that way, okay? <laughs> at that point in time, you're not going to have a nine-to-five or any other uh, more weird hours that some of you keep around here. Uh, <laughs> And I used to look at this statement about every support being cut off and think, oh man, that's, that's, that's going to be a terrible time. And then I ran into this statement. It is safe to let go every earthly support and take the hand of him who lifted up and saved the sinking disciple on the stormy sea. Well, that was some encouragement. It's going to be a terrible time, but it's safe. But you know, something about this every earthly support, just that phrase kind of rang, you know, and so I said, I should check this out. Punch it in, the little computer. Yeah, the computer thing is like so great, okay? It shows up one more time. We can never perfect a round, full Christian experience until every earthly support is removed and the soul centers its affections about God, entire affections about God. And all of a sudden, this terrible experience ends up, that's actually the goal. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we're trying to get. 
<laughs> you know, and, and really, it, it makes a fair amount of sense. Exactly when was it a good idea for Christians to depend on the world? You know? I mean, there's something a little weird about that idea. Okay. So sometimes these things kind of get stood on their heads. That's, that's what I was trying to say. Okay, so Kellogg makes this, this motion. They try to get the, send, the orphanage going. Uh, it got to the point that people were sending in orphans, but there was no orphanage. That was the problem. It got to the point where he needed some money, and he needed it right now, and he began praying. And a non-Adventist lady by the name of Mrs. Haskell came along, and she eventually gave a donation of $30,000, which is the largest donation that the church had ever received up to that point. Um, and if you're confused on what inflation does to your money, try building that for $30,000. Uh, because that was built every stick was built with her 30000 There wasn't a, an Adventist penny that went into that building. I don't think he could buy the doorknobs for 30000 today. <laughs> um, okay, so that was good, and the, the orphanage got going. At the same time, Kellogg was doing other things. I've got to be really quick about this. Uh, it was another whole other story where... Um, I'm going to skip the story, but the non-Adventist patient, eventually she died. She'd spent six weeks at the sanitarium. She went back down to Chicago, had a, a, an operation which was not successful. On her deathbed, she told her father, she was young, she was only 17, she told her father, she said, Daddy, as a memorial to me, I want you to put up the money to bring a nurse from the sanitarium of Battle Creek down to Chicago to work for the orphans. There are no nurses anywhere in the world like those wonderful nurses in, in Battle Creek. And so this non-Adventist writes Kellogg a letter and says, hey, I, I need one of your nurses and Kellogg reads the letter and says, that's nice, but I'm busy, and he ignored it. The guy writes again, and Kellogg ignored that. He writes again, and Kellogg ignored that. I think he wrote four times, and Kellogg ignored it. He had his hands full. He was busy doing other things. And then the guy got either really smart or lucky, I'm not sure which. He had his wife write a letter. Kellogg had a soft spot in his heart for mothers. <laughs> Who can turn down mom? So he marches over to the sanitarium, and he rounds up Emily Schranz. I'm not sure this is Emily or not. And he says, Emily, uh, we've got a non-Adventist guy down in Chicago who wants to pay one of our nurses to come down and work with the poor people in Chicago. This is the beginning of what was known as the Visiting Nurses Program. Kellogg loved that program because there were so many wild stories that came out of it. I mean, because these, these ladies worked in an area known as the Brewery, which was uh, so named because of the somewhat liquid dietary. And... Uh, its, it's other nickname was Hell's Half Acre, but there were serious objections to that because it was obviously larger than that. So anyhow, um, it was a tough area. The cops would not go in there. And, and these nurses were stopped many times on the streets. They were headed the wrong direction, and a police officer would come running up and says, ma'am, no, no, you don't. And they would point to the little cross on their uniform and say, it's OK, doctor. Or it's OK, officer, I'm, I'm good, I'm good. And there were great stories. And Kellogg loved those stories. He was a great storyteller. And he could use those to raise funds. He was a great fundraiser, too. <laughs> so the Visiting Nurses Program took off in, in 1892. Kellogg also started, also started the Christian Help Bands in November of 1892. He rounded up a bunch of workers in the sanitarium. He says, listen, we've got, we got this orphanage that's paid for by non-Adventists. We've got the visiting nurses down in Chicago that's paid for by non-Adventists. We've got all these doctors and nurses and, and, and sanitarium people here. We ought to be able to do something in our own town. So let's start a, a Christian Help Band. This is the simplest and most highly applauded form of medical missionary work in Ellen White's writings. Everything else, there's, there's cautions. There's, you know, okay, be careful here, you know, or, or don't do that, or this is wrong, or something like that. Christian Help Band, her, as far as I have found so far, her unvarying response is, yeah, what a great idea. Go ahead, do it. Yeah, please, no, next, come on. Yeah, make it happen, just go, okay? Christian Help Band worked like this. There were variations are, are perfectly acceptable, but the original was a, a nine-member band of workers. You had one leader. Uh, three young men uh, who were called burden bearers. Their basic qualification was they could pack stuff around. Um, you had uh, two mother's helpers who were generally middle-aged women who would visit door-to-door -door finding out what the needs in the community were. You had um, two nurses and one Bible worker. And they would be given a you know, chunk of town you know, from 4th Street to 8th Street and da-da-da, you know, whatever. And their job was to go through and make contact with every home in there and, and see what they could do to help. A Christian help band is a highly technical thing. It was a band of Christians who tried to help people. Um, and 
within six months, there were, um, do my math here, 16, I believe it was, Christian help bands formed just in Battle Creek, just with the sanitarium workers. That's 144 people who are now spending between two and about five hours per week just helping people in a fairly small city. Battle Creek was not huge. That began to have an influence. All this happened in 1892. uh, There's another thing that happened. November 22, 1892, Ellen White would write in the Review and Herald, the loud cry of the third angel has already begun in the revelation of the righteousness of Christ. The loud cry had begun. Nobody else knew that, of course. It hadn't made the front pages of the New York Times. Uh, Adventists wouldn't have even known it if Ellen White hadn't said so. But the loud cry had begun. My premise is that Kellogg had a role in that. Jones and Wagner and their theology basically said, you can depend on Jesus. This is righteousness by faith. You can trust Jesus. Kellogg took that and said, cool, if I can trust Jesus, I'll do that. I don't have to worry about myself. I can help others. Kellogg was not a theoretical believer. Quote, three slides back, right? He combined faith and works. He had faith. He was converted at Minneapolis. I mean, if you're going to be converted, why not Minneapolis, right? 1888, Jones, Wagner, a great time to be converted. Okay, kind of cool. Okay, so he's converted at Minneapolis. He's exemplifying Isaiah 58. He's doing these things, and Ellen White says, the loud cry has begun. My contention is that there is a very direct connection between that. But let's go on quickly for the history. About two months later, two and a half months later, there was a general conference session, 1893. Dr. Kellogg gave a series of presentations at that general conference session. Um, well, yeah, it went from then to then. Jones uh, spoke. He, those have been reprinted three times. They're good. I encourage you to read those too. Dr. Kellogg gave a series of talks. Um, I'm just going to scoot ahead here because we're going to be short on time if we're not careful. There we go. Um, some of you have already heard the story, but you know it, it's, it's fascinating to me that Kellogg's talks at the General Conference of 1893 were not reported in the General Conference Bulletin, which is the official record of everything that goes on at the General Conference session. They were not reported. The only place you can find them is in this publication. Notice up at the top it says extra number one. Um, and uh, it took, you know, once the, when, when three of his talks from that time period or from that occasion fell into my lap, about six years ago, seven years ago now, something like that. It, it took me about four months to even verify that they were real, okay? I knew from the time frame it was the General Conference, but he wasn't in the General Conference Bulletin. So how could this be? What's going on? Eventually we found them. They showed up in this. This was Kellogg's publication. It wasn't an official Adventist publication. And so even the General Conference archives did not have this series of presentations that Kellogg gave. In his presentations there... He said some really dynamite stuff. That's why I draw attention to them. That was interesting. Let's try that one more time. There we go. What did he say that was so amazing? Amazing to me, anyhow. He started off talking about good works. I'm just going to go through this very rapidly. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. That's an interesting thing. God gives us richly all things to enjoy, but then he talks about giving it away. How in the world can I enjoy something when I give it away? Oh, that's the point. It's not the thing that I'm enjoying. (laughs) It's the giving away that I'm enjoying. (laughs) It's more blessed to give than to receive, and that's been proven with psychological testing uh, like a gazillion times now, okay? Jesus kind of, you know, beat the psychologists to their own game, but that's, yeah, that's okay. Anyhow, um, so Kellogg went on, and he quoted a bunch of verses. All he wanted to do was say, you know what, as Christians, we should be doing good works, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Those who believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. Let our people maintain good works, meet urgent needs, uh, they be not unfruitful, uh, his own special people, zealous for good works. There's actually a lot of, a lot of passages talking about good works. <clears throat> and then he said this, and this is where it started getting really fascinating to me. He said, for years and years, we have been well able to furnish a home for the aged. 
They didn't have a retirement plan in those days. If you were an Adventist minister, you got paid as long as you worked. When you stopped working, you stopped getting paid. There's a certain logic to that. But it didn't do a lot for the older ones. <laughs> okay? For years and years, we've been well able to furnish a home for the aged, the infirm, the homeless, for poor widows, worn-out ministers, aged pilgrims, and helpless children, members of our denomination, old pioneers in the cause who gave liberally of their property in the early days when the work was just beginning, and whose faith in the truths which we profess has led them to put all their earnings into the cause instead of hoarding up a competency for themselves. All these worthy and deserving ones who appeal to us on fraternal as well as humanitarian grounds we have neglected in a manner which has become a denominational disgrace. I'll just simply note that that is one sentence, and it's perfectly grammatical. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'll also notice there's another really great vocabulary word in here. What is a competency? What would we call that today? That's your retirement fund. They did not save up a retirement fund. They did not save up money competent for the remainder of their life. That's how the word comes about. They didn't do that. But as a denomination, we were neglecting them. And he says, this is a disgrace. I'm ashamed of what my church has done. Well, <clears throat> he goes on. We, are set, we have set ourselves up on a high pinnacle and say we are the God's special people. Our cause is the Lord's cause, and we talk about ourselves as being the peculiar people, and yet we are not doing as much Christian work and Christian work of a very important character as other denominations are doing. Again, and he quotes now Ellen White, and there's just a couple of slides here where I have Ellen White's words in red, just so you'll know. It is right that more should be expected of us than of others. Now, the question is, whether Seventh-day Adventists are going to lead in this work or is it going to be left for someone else to do. The Lord has given us here a very precious work to do. It is not the whole of the third angel's message, but it is a part of it. You read in Isaiah 58 how we can make our light shine. If thou draw thy soul the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then shall thy light rise in obscurity and thy darkness be as the noonday. Kellogg basically, I'm just going to summarize, he said, if you want to know what the loud cry looks like, it's those promises at the end of Isaiah 58. The Lord will guide you continually, feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, you know, ride in the high places of the earth, you know, be like a tree whose waters, you know, or a garden whose waters do not fail. Uh, all those promises. He says, that's the loud cry. And they're all conditional. If you draw out your soul, then that happens. If you minister to those around you, if you follow the fast of Isaiah 58. Basically what he's saying here, two months after, two and a half months after Ellen White said the loud cry has begun, is he's saying the loud cry is dependent on God's people taking up medical missionary work. He didn't say it in those words. That's, that's just my kind of summation thought, okay? Interesting position. Ellen White, when the advocates of the law of God plant their feet firmly upon its principles, living out in their daily lives the spirit of the commandments and exercise true benevolence. What is benevolence? Good works. Boino, boino, you know, all that's it's from the Latin root. Just means being nice to people, okay? And exercise true benevolence to men. Then will they have power to move the world. And Kellogg says, we shall never have the moral power to move the world. We shall never see the loud cry, nor make the third angel's message go to any great extent. We will never see it go so as to move the world, at least, until we carry out these truths in our daily lives. We cannot get moral power to move the world until we get where we will do what the scriptures and the testimonies say we must do. We have not done it yet. We have waited for outside people to come in and build our orphan's home. The Lord may be ready to start the loud cry, but we are not ready. We have not done our part, and the Lord is waiting for us to do something in the direction of good works. If the loud cry has been begun by our people, it must be because we have just begun to do a little in the way of letting our light shine. But we have done so little in that way that it seems to me that before the loud cry will make any great noise in the world, we will have to let our light shine a great deal brighter than we have ever yet done because the works come first. The light must shine through these good works before we can be called the repairers, the breach, and the restorers, the paths, the dwelling. For that promise comes after all these conditions, you see. An interesting position. I think right here he nailed it on the head. The loud cry had just begun. 
the church had just begun to do this combined ministry that Christ used. Remember, we we'll talked about this morning. The combined ministry. It had just started. Kellogg, in his presentations, used one verse. It just really, I just love this one. It really got me. He who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord, and he, capital H, will pay back what he, little h, has given. Now, if I found myself in a hard way at some point, and I will pick on Christy here, and so I come to Christy and I say, Christy, I've got a problem. I need $100. Could you lend me $100? You would say, what a nice person, eh? Okay, so she gives me the $100. What has now changed in my relationship to Christy? I owe her. She lent to me, therefore I owe her. He who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord. God is now in debt. He wants medical missionary work to go forward so badly that he will go in debt to make it happen. Do you ever want God to actually owe you something? <laughs> there you go. Okay. <clears throat> Looking at Ellen White's statement, the time of test is just upon us, for the loud cry of the third angel has already begun, the revelation of the righteousness of Christ, the sin-pardoning Redeemer. This is the beginning of the light of the angel whose glory shall fill the whole earth. Notice it was the beginning. It was just the beginning, she said. We haven't really seen it yet. It's just the beginning. But notice this other word right here. It is a revelation. It is not a proclamation. We have tried to preach our way to the loud cry, and it will never happen. It is a revelation of the righteousness of Christ. There is proclamation that goes along with it, right? The proclamation is the explanation of the demonstration. That was Kellogg's contribution. And it didn't go into the General Conference Daily Bulletin. And so for like 113 years, nobody even knew it was there to speak of. It was amazing. Just amazing. Okay, well, God's purpose, this is Ellen White now writing, God's purpose in committing to men and women the mission that he committed to Christ is to disentangle his followers from all worldly policy and to give them a work identical with the work that Christ did. I would just like to point out that the word identical is a very strong term. <laughs> okay? Now, I'll have to tell you, there's a bunch of these statements, and I've just kind of... I'm, if, if you can read the gray stuff in between, go for it, because I'm just going to hit the highlights, and I've I got to zing through this, or we're never going to... Yeah, this is not going to work. So, okay. Let us remember it's not by word and precept alone that we are to reveal Christ's character. In act, as well as in word, we shall reveal the world, to the world the character of the unseen. I want to tell you that when the gospel ministers and the medical mission workers are not united, there is placed on our churches the worst evil that can be placed. That's an indication of how significant this is. I'm just going to have to move on. This, oh, this is amazing. Christ's ministers must stand in an altogether different position. They must be evangelists. They must be medical missionaries. They must take hold of the work intelligently, but it is of no use for them to think that they can do this while they drop the work which God has said should be connected with the gospel. If they drop out the medical missionary work, they need not think that they can carry forward their work successfully, for they have only half the necessary facilities. We have tried to preach our way to the second coming. It's not going to happen. Okay, I speak to every member of the church. Okay, now we're shifting. Here's the point. This was, that was Kellogg's contribution. Now we're shifting to seeing Kellogg slide into the other camp, right? This is 1882. This was before the man was really converted again, right? Okay? But he'd been the medical director of the sanitarium for six years at this point. Ellen White writes, I speak to every member of the church. Why do you delight in making your wicked speeches and indulging your wicked feelings against Dr. Kellogg? Has he not sufficient burdens to carry? Would you crush him to the earth with your suspicions excuse me, prompted by Satan? Would you feel great pleasure in seeing the Health Institute go down? Is this what you desire? Kellogg caught more flack than anybody else in the denomination. Let's just put it that way, okay? Dr. Kellogg has needed the sympathy and confidence of his brethren. 
If the doctor fails in doing his duty and being an overcomer at last, those brethren who have failed in their want of wisdom and discernment to help the man when, he, when and where he needed their help will be in a large measure responsible. You may remember there's a similar statement made about Jones and Wagner. Right? Some of you remember that? Okay. Same thing. Kellogg is like the third leg of that whole uh, particular operation. And we've ignored him because we've been focused simply on the theoretical gospel rather than the applied gospel. The Lord has given Dr. Kellogg his work. It is a fact that our ministers are very slow to become health reformers, notwithstanding all the light which the Lord has given upon this subject. This has caused Dr. Kellogg to lose confidence in them. Uh, in defense of the ministry, I would say that you know it was probably harder for them to be quote-unquote health reformers in those days than anybody else. They tended to be very itinerant. They, they didn't just you know live at home and, and have one little church or two little churches to care, to care for. These guys were itinerant evangelists. This is a day and age when vegetarianism was not trendy, <laughs> to say the least. Uh, they didn't have refrigeration, and they didn't even have blenders. You know? I mean, it's... <laughs> <laughs> How can you be a vegetarian without a blender? I mean, come on. <laughs> it's like, you know. And, and they were traveling. What are the odds of them finding consistent vegetarian dietary? And so I think a lot of them just, you know, I, I can't do it consistently. It's not working. And they kind of gave up. And that really stressed Kellogg tremendously. Maybe too much, but that's what happened. And so there was this growing rift between Kellogg and the ministers, Okay. Speaking of the ministry, so their tardy work in health reform has created in Dr. Kellogg a spirit of criticism, which he has borne down on them in an unsparing manner, which the Lord does not sanction. He has belittled the gospel ministry, and in his regard and ideas have placed the medical mission work above the ministry. I have seen that in the censoring of ministers, remarks have been made which have not been to the honor and glory of God. And this is basically very simplified and as superficial as I can make it right now. There developed this, this rift between the ministry and Kellogg, and Kellogg started drifting off to one direction, and the ministers actually were kind of drifting the other direction, and neither side was right. Ellen White was constantly trying to drag these guys back together, okay? Um, but even while she was defending Kellogg, there was danger of him, you know, he was drifting, right? So it was a messy situation. I have light from the Lord that Dr. Kellogg needs to be guarded. He is leaving a wrong impression on our minds. He has made a mistake in supposing the medical missionary work has an importance above every other work. Medical missionary work has its place, but it has been made disproportionately important. Remember the previous comment? His work seemed to be disproportionately large. She defended that. She says, he's just doing what he's supposed to be. You guys aren't doing enough. But this is different. This is disproportionately important. Now, Physical health was rising above the level of spiritual health in Kellogg's mind. That's a serious error. Had Dr. Kellogg's brethren stood with him in the first of his experience in connection with health reform, the present condition of things would not now exist. You know, it's, it's so amazing uh, what our influence can do down the road. And you don't know that until you get down the road. Although there may be unworthy ones connected with the ministry, yet no one can ignore the ministry without ignoring Christ. Dr. Kellogg, something is the matter. You are represented to me as being in danger of standing apart from our people, feeling that you are a complete whole. Do not, I beg of you, instill into the minds of the students ideas that will cause them to lose confidence in God's appointed ministers. But this you are most certainly doing, whether you are aware of it or not. The work done for those who come to you for instruction is not complete unless they are educated to work in connection with the church. You know, the brethren pose one of our biggest challenges, okay? Because the last time I checked, the brethren were not yet perfect. How, how do I work with people that are faulty? You know, it's ridiculous. <laughs> but they ask the same thing about me, you know? We've got to somehow find a balance of holding up the standard and holding up the goal of actually living up to every light. And yet we've still got to find a way to work together. And Kellogg was losing that. Well, along came the fire, um, February 18, 18, uh, 1902, I should say. Sanitarium burnt down. Lots of interesting stories out of that, but we won't go into the trouble of that for right now. Uh, Kellogg said, hey, we've got to rebuild. I've got a plan. I just finished a book. We'll sell this book and raise money to rebuild the sanitarium. The uh, conference, actually, they said it was a 
was it a grand idea, I think is the, the terminology that was used, something like that. And then they got to looking at the book, and there came to be some challenges with the book. Title there, I don't know if you can read it, is The Living Temple. And in it, Kellogg expressed what, as near as I know, I've never read the book, right? I encourage you to likewise not read the book, because I don't know why it said don't read the book. Um, but, uh, and, and in this day and age, that extends to a lot of other things. You know, don't watch the YouTube videos. You know, I mean, I'm not saying all videos, but, you know, uh, of the nature of this book, which we'll talk about in a moment. Stay away from that stuff. That's the, the key thought. If the little bits and pieces that everybody quotes from the book, this is all I've ever read, is the, about the three paragraphs that people quote from the book, if that's the, the worst of the book, which I assume that it is, it's not strongly pantheistic. It's pretty mild by today's comparisons, okay? But it was dangerous. It was dangerous. And um, there were problems with that. It did, like I say, it did have some pantheism, which is the idea that God is everything and everything is God, okay? That's the, the simple definition of pantheism. Yeah, hmm, okay. Uh, <laughs> interestingly enough, now notice this statement here. This is 1903. This is a whole year after he'd written his pantheistic book, and Ellen White is still defending him. She's not defending pantheism. She is defending a pantheist, <laughs> okay? She wanted to hang on to this guy because she knew how valuable he was, and I'm not going to take time to read that one. Um, an interesting set of phraseology that she used coming out of this, she spoke of the alpha and the omega of apostasy. She said that Dr. Kellogg's book had in it the alpha. She says, many will depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. We have now before us the alpha of this danger, the omega will be of a most startling nature. Okay, alpha and omega are the Greek first letter and last letter of the alphabet, right? Okay, alpha, beta, gimelain, so alphabet is, comes from the first two letters, alpha, beta. So she says, Kellogg's book is the alpha, but there's an omega that's coming, and it will be of a most startling nature. She says, Living Temple contains the alpha of these theories. I knew that the omega would follow in a little while, and I trembled for our people. And last one, in the book, Living Temple, there is, rep there is presented this, excuse me, the alpha of deadly heresies. The omega will follow and will be received by those who are not willing to heed the warning God has given. What is the warning God has given? You know, she never says exactly what she's referring to there. If I had to pick, I would summarize it very succinctly and say, don't read the book. I think that's, that's the one warning, okay? Stay away from that stuff. It's not going to help you. As I am shown these special things of Satan's science and how he deceived holy angels, I am afraid of the men who have entered into the study of the science that Satan carried into warfare in heaven. Remember Friday night? Lucifer in heaven, Kellogg's picking up the same mantle now. Oh, how I have longed to be where I should not be compelled to see the same science practiced on this earth by medical practitioners. How my heart has been agonized as I have seen souls accepting the inducements held out to them to unite with those who are, were warring against God. When they once accept the bait, it seems impossible to break the spell Satan casts over them. What is she talking about? What, is that? what, what constitutes the once accepting the bait? To be honest, it's a little hard to, to make a, a real distinctive application of that in Kellogg's day, okay? I would guess it basically means once you buy into the pantheistic concepts. There's a much clearer application that I can make in our day, and that is that first contact with the supernatural world that comes through the mystical experience. There's this just you know, from Adventist, non-Adventist, and non-Christian sources all over the place, they will tell you that that first contact just is, is, is galvanizing. It just changes you. Don't read the book. Take not a particle of interest in spiritualistic theories. Satan is waiting to steal a march upon everyone who be, uh, allows himself to be deceived by his hypnotism. He begins to exert his power over them just as soon as they begin to investigate his theories. And once again, just like last night with the origin of sin, God says there are some things that you can't explain. Don't, don't try. Don't investigate his theories. I know, I know. The whole concept of Western academia is if only we know enough, we can understand this. And God says, long before you know enough to understand it, you're going to lose your soul. Don't read the book. Suffer not yourselves to open the lids of a book that is questionable. There is a hellish, 
hell-ish fascination in the literature of Satan. Never feel that you are strong enough to read infidel books. In reading them, you are inhaling the miasmas of hell. Well, she was trying to get this, uh, the seriousness of this across to the general conference officers, and she wrote to them twice, I think maybe even three times, and she basically said this. Read in my books, Patriarchs and Prophets and Great Controversy, the story of the first great apostasy. History is being repeated and will be repeated. Read then and understand. She's talking about Kellogg. Kellogg encapsulated in his good phase the work of Christ and in his bad phase the work of Lucifer. Souls will be lost through a living temple. You have united with the prince of darkness. She doesn't say things like this about other people too much. When you wrote that book, you were not under the inspiration of God. There was by your side the one who inspired Adam to look at God in a false light. You have been the spokesman, repeating the words of accusation and condemnation of the arch-deceiver. Your sciences have been used to benumb the sensibilities and confuse the judgment of others. In long night talks, you have presented your mind and plans and works, and these have become their mind and plan and works. In listening to your words, these men have imbibed the very science of the tempter. Remember, I said uh, last night, it was, it was that Lucifer going around and planting seeds and coming back. That's the one that she speaks of more often than anything else in her accounts of the fall of Lucifer. And talking about Kellogg and his deceptive tactics, it's these long night talks. That's the one that comes up more often than anything else. And it's the same thing. Kellogg used these long night talks to make his plan and minds and whatever become their plan and minds and whatever, right? Same thing. I don't know. Uh, chronobiology is a fascinating uh, field, you know, different, the, the, the body, the brain work differently at different times of the day. Maybe we're more susceptible to influence in long night talks, or maybe just when we're tired or something. But she says, don't do it. Willie, uh, Willie White got drug into one of those things, and, and she was like miles away, I forget how far, and she had vision of, of Willie right at that time in this conversation with Dr. Kellogg and several ministers, and it went on until 2 o'clock in the morning. And she was just in agony because she could see the devil and his angels in the room carrying on this work, and she, she was just sitting there praying for her son. Okay? This whole matter has been presented to me. You have worked as Lucifer worked in the heavenly courts to persuade his associates to unite with him. It would have been better for Dr. Kellogg if he had never been born, if he continues to build himself up in his own magical arts of mind in influencing other minds. I have not one ray of hope regarding him unless he understands that through satanic agencies he is striving for power over human minds. This has been shown me. Did he understand himself what he was doing? I, I don't honestly know. He professed that he was doing nothing of the sort, of course. But what did he know? I don't know. It's, it's, it's puzzling. It's, I'll have to tell you. I'll just be honest. I, I'm, I'm researching for this book I'm writing. I had, a, I had a real struggle. Do I read Kellogg's letters? I've got a bunch of his letters. Do I read them or do I not read them? Eventually, I'll tell you what I decided. I'm not defending this, I'm just being honest. I decided I would read them, but I would always read Ellen White's letters in the rough time frame before I read Kellogg. Does that make sense? And I will say this, if I only read Kellogg's letters, I'd believe him. He is very persuasive. He is very persuasive. It's just he was lying. He was a good liar. Dr. Kellogg is linked up with the great deceiver. He has studied hypnotism and spiritualism for the purpose of bringing minds to endorse sentiments that, want, that mean the denial of the faith once delivered to the saints. I have seen Dr. Kellogg exerting a hypnotic influence upon persons at such times as the arch-deceiver was his helper. Dr. Kellogg places himself in a position of one who is abused because he cannot carry everything with him. In other words, he doesn't get everything he wants, right? They're picking on me, right? But he is still at work with all subtlety. He works with such ingenuity to obtain sympathy that to many his words seem genuine. And I can attest to that reading his letters. You would think he was the most abused guy in the world. He was pure as the new-blown snow. It's like, it's kind of spooky. (laughs) Don't read the book. And I'm not even sure about the letters. We need not the mysticism that is in this book. 
living temple. Those who entertain these sophistries will soon find themselves in a position where the enemy can talk with them and lead them away from God. What is mysticism? Uh, dictionary definitions don't help me a whole lot. Um, you can read them. They're just... I'll give you my own, you know, for whatever it's worth to you, okay? Uh, mysticism, I would describe it as the belief in and the practice of human-controlled means to establish direct communication with deity. Does that make sense? Stuff that I can do to get in touch with God. Now, as Christians, there's kind of a fine line there because I can pray, you know, hope you do too, right? But this is not that kind of, this is, this is, this is going beyond. This is, I want direct communication. You know, God says, I speak to Moses face to face and prophets and dreams. The rest of you guys, sorry about that, but you're a little further away. I don't want that. I want to be direct. That's the concept of mysticism. Uh, I'm just going to skip that and go on. Early in Ellen White's ministry, she was accused of saying that she could have a vision whenever she wanted to. It always intrigued me. I, d I never had a reason before. She vehemently denied that every time it came up. It is utterly false that I have ever intimated I could have a vision when I please. There is not a shade of truth in this. I have never said I could throw myself into visions when I please, for this is simply impossible. It's like, you could have just said no. <laughs> but thank you for making your point, you know. <laughs> okay. Now, what's interesting to me, well, let's go on with this statement here. I have felt for years that if I could have my choice and please God as well, I would rather die than have a vision. For every vision places me under great responsibility to bear testimonies of reproof and of warning which, it is ever, which has ever been against my feelings. And so so here's, here's Ellen White, and she says, can I die? That'd be better. And everybody else is saying, we want the mystical experience. I think we're talking about two different things. The whole meditation, mindfulness. Oh, that just, that just really torques me off as an English teacher. Don't take the word mindful and make it mean mind empty. That's just dumb. Um, but mysticism is a huge thing. Uh, going quickly. You may remember the reapproachment between Pope Francis and Copeland a while ago, and then we got this Tony Palmer guy who proclaimed the Reformation over, right? It was all on the basis, the common basis of mysticism, right? Francis is the first uh, Jesuit pope. As a Jesuit, he has to use the, the Ignatian, uh, what do you call them, disciplines, right? Which is mystical, which is designed to encourage and to seek this direct communion with God. Uh, Copeland, of course, is a charismatic, uh, tongue-speaking, whatever guy. Um, and, and this guy, uh, you know, I probably shouldn't say this because it's being recorded, but, you know, I mean, who does he look like? <laughs> and then he conveniently dies three months later. I mean, I just, I, I just you know, this is, he was killed in an automobile or in a motorcycle, according to some reports. According to other reports, he left the hospital feeling just fine. You know, I've, I've heard. I don't know. I don't pretend to know. But it's a weird thing. Let's put it that way. But the power of the mysticism aspect continues to grow. Um, okay, so we've got the Pope, and we've got Copeland over here. I think that may be Copeland's wife there. And, of course, we've got Tony Palmer and all these other nice people. I don't know who they are, but they're, they're all charismatic. Protestants... <clears throat> from the United States, okay? And they're all there in the Vatican having a happy time. But that's not all. It's much more than that because mysticism transcends all denominations, all belief systems. So here we've got, let's see. I assume the headdresses here are, are some form of probably Sufi uh, Islam. Uh, this would be a Hindu mark there. This would be Hare Krishna. This, I think, is probably Orthodox. Uh, I don't know. Maybe, I don't know, maybe Catholic. Probably happy little Protestants or something. I don't know who they are. Yeah, there's only one guy in the whole picture that I can really relate to. <laughs> How do I get out of here? 
you know, I, it's probably secret service or something, I don't know, but you know, I was like, how do I get out of here? But the, this, this mystical tie transcends all this. Francis, he doesn't have a problem hanging out with these guys. I, I don't really understand this one. I mean, there's just like happy little confusion here. I don't know what that is. But it's like, it doesn't matter what we believe because we all have the same mystical experience. And they will say that. exactly. That's exactly what they say. It's, it's a great unifying thing. Quickly, quickly, quickly. I'm already out of time, I think. I tell you in the name of the Lord God of Israel that Satan is presenting his officers to ministers and medical workers. If our people will listen to these officers, they will become impregnated with the same satanic idea of a popular religion that will cause them to develop into gods and there will be no place in their lives for God or for Christ. That's what pantheism is because if God is everything and everything, and everything is God and I'm part of everything, then obviously I'm part of God and God is part of me. And if I have God in me telling me what to do, oh, who, who else do I need, Really? This mysticism will get the whole room of the heart all ready for these miracles that Satan will come to work right in our midst. Interesting. She puts a lot of emphasis on that. Okay. <clears throat> there is a time for silence. Some, that would be A.G. Daniels and Willie White and W.W. Prescott. I'll just fill in the names there. Some thought the time, and I.H. Evans. In other words, the general conference. Okay. Some thought the time had come long ago to make a determined effort to break the spell and expose the deception. For years, one and still another of Dr. Kellogg's men have stood forth claiming that Dr. Kellogg is all right, that he teaches the message as we believe it, that he believes the testimonies. But at the same time, a work of misrepresentation was going on, and many of our people were becoming spiritually deceived. And so there have been for years people who said, come on, let's meet this thing, let's deal with it. But, oops, oops, to those who urged immediate action, I said, wait until Dr. Kellogg himself and those closely allied with him take an open stand, then be all prepared with matter ready to give. I find this fascinating. She was tactical, right? There's a time, there's a place, there's a method. We're going we're gonna to pursue it. We are in a war. You don't just, you know, you don't always just say, okay, everybody, let's charge. That's a, that's a good way to get killed. There's, there's a place for tactics. And she said, wait, this is not the time. I was shown that our brethren must make no move until Dr. Kellogg and his associates had taken a decided position to repudiate the testimonies. When this was done, we must show our people the right side and take the affirmation in the name of the Lord, or the affirmative in the name of the Lord. We had to move, and yet we had to wait. Until those in error thought they could carry things against the ministers and churches. I was shown their course of action and had everything in readiness for such a movement and labored to defeat their deep-laid plots. Deep-laid plots. This is intentional. This is not just misguided people doing unfortunate things. This is, this is people intending to destroy your church. And she said, I had to wait. Lucifer intended to take over the government of heaven. And God did nothing to help the other angels until he had developed that philosophy. Judas intended to sell his Lord for 30 pieces of silver. And the disciples thought he was going out to buy some bread or something. We will hit the final days with, I'm convinced, com considerable levels of uncertainty and confusion in our midst. Friends of the doctor were visiting our churches, acting as spies to work up a sentiment favorable to his interests. A work of deception was being carried on. I said to those who would urge immediate action, do not act hastily. It will be better to wait until Dr. Kellogg and his associates take the position that they do not believe the testimonies. This was done. Meetings were held in Battle Creek, at which the testimonies were presented in a very objectionable light. The testimonies were practically uh, repudiated, uh, and then they, they acted. I'm just going to skip ahead that those whom we thought sound in the faith should have failed to discern the specious, deadly influence of this science of evil should alarm us as nothing else has alarmed us. But just because you're alarmed doesn't mean you raise your voice. We had to work, but we had to wait. It is something that cannot be treated as a small matter that men who have had so much light and such clear evidence to the genuineness of the truth we hold should become unsettled and led to accept spiritualistic theories regarding the personality of God. Ah, I'm going to skip that one. So here's kind of a summation. We looked Friday night at Lucifer's Rebellion, and this morning at Christ's response. This afternoon, 
we looked at the good Kellogg, which led to the beginning of a loud cry, and we looked at the bad Kellogg, which led to the alpha of apostasy. The alpha of apostasy is obviously directly related to the omega of apostasy, and the beginning of the loud cry is directly related to the fulfillment of the loud cry. My premise here is that the four items on the top paint a picture of what we're going to see at some point, hopefully, in the near future. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.